0: Hello, welcome to Canucks Talk. I'm your host, Thomas Drance, joined today by Harmon Dial. Last day with Harmon on the program. Jamie will be rejoining us tomorrow. Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota All Star team. Visit avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com for more info about our generous sponsors. We're also coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics is Canada's favorite orthotics provider. And that's supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. Of course, over the course of the show, we're going to need your help driving the conversation. So chime in. Send us your thoughts, your takes, your criticism to the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber is the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver or online at DunbarLumber.com. It is a Canucks game day and it is an eventful Canucks game day because today, March 23rd, with the San Jose Sharks in town, marks the beginning of the Philip Heronic era. In Vancouver, Rick Tockett confirms... That the right-handed defenseman acquired by the club at great cost ahead of the trade deadline will play tonight coming off of an upper body injury. Harmon, what can we expect from Philip Peronik tonight?
1: It's funny because right off the bat, I'm like... Wait, hold on. A good right-handed defenseman, a legitimately good right-handed defenseman is about to dress for the Vancouver Canucks.
0: When's the last <laughs> time we saw this? Yeah, pinch me.
1: Literally. So Not
0: since Chris Tanev left. No, uh, I mean more or less.
1: Yeah, literally. So just on that basis, especially with what the blue line has has consisted of outside of Hughes, I think it's it's he's going to look significantly better right off the hop, we're, we're going to notice things like a clean outlet pass or the way he skates the puck out of the zone or him just scanning around in the defensive zone, being able to use a stick to break up a cross-scene pass, and you'll see those flashes and go, whoa, that's something that we haven't seen here in a really, really long time. Now, at the same time, it's interesting because on the one hand, because he hasn't played in a few weeks, you, you know that his conditioning isn't going to quite be right. Right? This isn't a guy who is coming over straight from the trade. He's in midseason form. He's kind of starting over again, which is why, on the one hand, I am tempering expectations a little bit. But then on the other hand, there's a decent, decent chance that he might end up playing with Quinn Hughes. And if you're in that spot, then your job's a whole he- heck of a lot easier.
0: Well, it is. Okay, so I'm going to read you a list of defensemen with whom Philip Peronik has played 200 minutes or more at 5-on-5. Five five. Over the last three seasons, okay? Philip Ronick, over the last three seasons. 527 minutes with Nick Letty. Ouch. 506 minutes with Mark Stahl. Woof. 450 minutes with Danny DeKaiser. 445 minutes with Olimata. Hey, that's not bad. is yeah. pretty good. I like Olimata. 345 minutes with Ben Sherat. Your favorite player. Oof. Two hundred and thirty-five minutes with Patrick Nemeth. If Philip Pronik wakes up today, gets into the lineup right, from his pregame nap, right? Eats his chicken parm, has his pregame nap, does his anaerobic warm-up, takes the warm-up skate, and starts tonight's game on Quinn Hughes' right side. It might feel like Christmas to Canucks fans who haven't had an opportunity to watch a ton of right-handed defensemen of Horonik's caliber over the past few years, but I promise you, it's going to be like nothing Philip Horonik's experienced for any duration of time uh, dating back to 2018. I mean, this would be an opportunity to play with a defense partner uh, at a level like well outside the bounds of what he's customarily been attached to. Um I would think that if Noah Juleson's not in, Hronik will start on that top pair. Like, I don't know if that's plan A long-term, but tonight, particularly because it does seem that the club's reluctant to play Kyle Burrows in that spot for whatever reason. Size, (laughs) let's be honest. I think Hronik starts there, and, and I think that pair is going to eat, especially against a San Jose Sharks team that, ain't very much to write home about.
1: Yeah, they're going to be a ton of fun to watch. With Horonic too, the interesting thing is, it's not just the defense partners who have been of really poor quality, but before Sider came in last season, he was legitimately thrown to the wolves, eating tough matchups, being deployed as a number one defenseman on Red Wings teams that were still rebuilding from, essentially, scratch, from Mm -hmm. nothing. So him in that situation, it was kind of like, the 2016, 2017 years, twenty eighteen years, even yeah, with when the Bo Horvat,
0: Troy Stetscher well, not top even hand. that, but like
1: it's like you know how for years it was like Bo Horvat, he's like a second line center, but he's ostensibly their first line center, and he's got nobody on his wings, sure, and it's like oh poor Bo, Bo Horvat, he's playing some of the toughest matchups in the league, and he's got no help next to him, thrown to the wolves, yeah. So Horonic's essentially been the defense version uh, of that for for a while before Satter came in, and it was interesting too in looking at. The way that he played this year, where he started with Oli Mata and that pair, Horowitz's first twenty games, even outside of his PDO bender, I was talking to some smart people who are based out of the East and watch closely. They said even outside of those percentages being in his favor, he was playing really, he well. was outstanding. Yep. and then he got paired with Ben Sherratt, and then and then that pair really really struggled, which isn't too surprising because. When Sherratt started the year with Sider, Sider, who we know is a f- one of the best young defensemen an in the game. An absolute
0: tank of a human being.
1: Sherratt somehow found found a way to tank that pair too. So, it's, I think, going to make a huge difference for him to potentially get an opportunity with a player of Hughes' caliber.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, Philip Peronic, 41% shot attempt differential with Ben Shirat, 48 without. I think that speaks volumes about the way his season had gone in Detroit, and yet large sample looking over, you know, this who's who of some of the least effective two-way defensemen in the NHL over the last three years who have been Heronics' go-to partners over the past few seasons. Like, for the most part, to this point in his career, and he's still youngish, Horonick's been a mid-player in terms of his five-on-five impact. Like, if I was to read a similar list of players that Quinn Hughes has played with, Right? Obviously, it's not that different in quality over the last three years. Jordy Ben and Travis Hammonick and Luke Shen and Ethan Baird, on and on down the list. Noah Juleson. But you put anybody, you strap anybody to Quinn Hughes and they're wearing rocket boots. Now, Hronick can probably do more in more normal second pair usage than he did in Detroit. But... It's important to make a distinction. Like this is not a guy who to this point in his career has shown that you can ticky tack tape a replacement level guy to in a top four role and just have him kind of stir the drink for that pair. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I I also think the offensive impact that he's had, right? Like Horonix, a good skater and a good breakout passer, but he's not as dynamic with the puck as I think some people would probably like you think about the profile of like just a, just under six foot right-handed defenseman with the sort of counting stats that Hironic has people think puck mover, right? Like making plays with his feet. Not that Hironic can't do it, but he's not a dynamic puck carrier. He's not going to be again, the the standard that we are used to in this market. So high. Cause we think of Quinn Hughes, like that's, that's not this, the type of player Hironic is, um, Good skater can, can make, like, the move to set up a good outlet. Really good shot. Like, there's a lot to like. But I, I wonder if people are going to be surprised by how he carries the puck, right? Like, that he's not a super frequent or super dynamic puck carrier himself, typically.
1: Yeah, well, I was surprised when, after the trade, I watched hours of heronic tape And I, again, had that preconceived notion, especially because that was the reputation for him out of Detroit in his early years was, hey, this guy puts up a lot of point totals, but he is very flawed defensively. But then I watched his tape from this season, and he was way different than what what I expected, where what you mentioned in terms of his skating and puck carrying is right, where when he has time and space, I think the best way to describe him is he's smooth, Mm. right? So... When he's when when, he, when the opposition four check is let's say backed up or or he's got room to operate, he he's buttery smooth carving through. But he's not the type that you're. He's going to have two four checkers hounding on him, and he's going to spin and he, off exactly. And like, yeah. So and the other part o- about his game, which I think is relevant, is because of the way that he looked like a jack of all trades, like all around guy, a guy who is a little bit above average in every department of of the game it looked like in terms of his competitiveness, in terms of how uh, he defended, in terms of his offense's own play. He looked like the type of player similar to what you said, where it's like don't strap a terrible partner next to him and expect him to sort of drive that pair on his own. He, that's why, to me, he looked like a good number three defenseman mm. as opposed to, let's say, a two you know what sure, I mean? So, yeah. and and that's where like a number three defenseman. If you pair that sort of guy with a partner of Hughes's caliber, that pair will obviously crush. But if you have that guy leading a third, uh, leading a second pair, then you want to at least give him help so that he has a uh, a chance because he's he's the sort of player that lifts you above average in a lot of different areas. But he doesn't have. I wouldn't. I want to say that he has like elite or standout traits where it's like. He'll be able to carry play uh, all by himself. He, he's the sort of player where the quality of the infrastructure around him matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Where when I watched Detroit and he had Mata next to him and he and when the forwards would help him, you'd watch him and you'd, and you'd go, okay, he's making nice passes. He's able to skate the puck out. He's making plays in the offensive zone. He's defending pretty well. Great. But then when the environment wasn't as good, when it's like he's with Sherratt, the forwards aren't helping as much. He was kind of left on an island, and it's like he was struggling. He spent a lot of time in his own end just because he doesn't necessarily have elite tools.
0: There's, a, there's also, a, in terms of his defensive play, there's a profile of a player, and and Heronic, to me, matches it, where their ability to defend the neutral zone at the line um, is good, right? They're strong defensively, but they're not necessarily, like, he's not what I'd call like a cycle stopper. Right. He he yeah. he's reliable, he can he can contribute in a in a zone defensive scheme like the ones the, the, the Canucks will play, but he's not a stopper. And as such, like he, he pretty consistently has an impact on limiting the shot attempts that opponents generate, but not on the quality, not on the scoring chances, mm-hmm. and typically not on the goals rate that his opponents give up. Is there is there an extent to which that in some ways makes him a suboptimal fit? For Quinn Hughes, who who profiles similarly in a lot of ways.
1: Potentially, but I also thought similar things about a Hughes-Bear pairing, Mm. right? I thought Hughes-Bear on paper, I looked at it and went, I don't think there's any way this can really work because Bear can't stop plays off the cycle. Positionally, he's prone to making the odd egregious mistake where he might make a bad read and put himself out of position. He can also turn the puck over, and yet when you look at Hughes and Bear's numbers together, they've crushed. They've actually been way better than I anticipated, and Heronik is obviously a much better player than Bear. The other thing about Heronik, which, I think, if it translates, would be able to work really well, is that when he'd have a tight gap on puck carriers, he was really aggressive able to close and actually break plays up and create those changes in possession. And so what that did is it created environments where there weren't as many of those long cycle shifts because you're right off the cycle when a team's already set up, he's not necessarily the high end sort of guy who's going to, you know, do the Kristanev sort of thing. Oh, no. Right. Ex- yeah. Exactly. But there were a lot of plays where he was able to actually like stop the opponent, like let's say, off work regroup, or in in some other in some other sequence where they've like just entered the zone, they're a few seconds in, so it's not directly killing a play off the rush, but it's like as as the puck carrier is moving to the outside, Hronik is just like able to kill the play early, right? So I think that's going to be important for his defensive results to translate here, and that's why I'm
0: I'm still pretty confident that uh, Hughes and Hronik will work really well together. Let's talk power play really quick. Because one area where Hronik has typically been high end, right? Not not mid, not good, but no qualifiers needed, right? Hronik is dynamic, excellent, exceptional five on four, and yet the opportunity for a defenseman in Vancouver to be sort of a secondary five on four contributor has been limited, right? Like I think this is actually one of the things that has um, hurt Oliver Ekman Larson. Right, like where where's Oliver Ekman Larson remain really good on the power play? Well, he doesn't get to play there, <laughs> right? Like he was he was point per game plus in the game Hughes missed, for example, games Hughes missed last season. Yeah, but this year, um, you know, at the end of the day, Hughes plays four plus minutes a game on the power play. Like he, he sometimes stays on the whole time these days. He's never leaving the ice, whether it's a power play or not. How? Can this team get the most out of Hronik in a world where that opportunity is going to be limited? Well, it's, it's interesting because I almost think that you have to...
1: If you look at it from the lens of how do we maximize Hronik's power play value, I think you're going about it the wrong way. Right. Because your options then are either you place Hronik on the first unit with Hughes and you go 2D which in today's NHL, very few top power play units are able to excel that way. And so much of the research and evidence has shown that four forwards and one D work way better in terms of goal scoring rate than having three forwards and two defenders. So it's like you don't want to probably don't want to go down that route. And then your other option is, okay, well, have them on the second unit and then just distribute the minutes more evenly between the first and second unit, which if the first unit is producing,
0: I don't know if you necessarily want to do that either. So, does he play second unit? Like, is it just as simple as he's on the second unit, and it is what it is? That that's how I would do it. Yeah,
1: but it wouldn't surprise would it surprise you if, like, we've seen the Canucks experimenting with a lot of different looks with on the first unit, right? Uh, a lot of guys have cycled through the bumper. We've seen Besser Kuzmenko, like, sort of rotating between the net front. We've even seen Miller at the net front. We've seen all these different looks, guys in different spots. I
0: love Miller at the net front, by the way.
1: Yeah, would it surprise you if they at some point before the end of the season experiment with Heronik and Hughes both on PP
0: one? No, and I have time for it, by the way. I think yeah. if you do it, I think if you do it though, heronic has got to be up top, right? Because he has the because he has the bomb. Yeah, and 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 again, you know, I I didn't bring this up the other day. It was one going to be one of my. I remember when we were doing eye test takes, but yeah. but here's my eye test take on Quinn Hughes's shot. Something that gets discussed a lot by Hughes directly. I think that Hughes not having a bomb shot is mostly an asset, mostly an asset, right? Like, and here's why we don't live in a world where NHL power plays like spend time setting up a point shot. And that's for good reason. The further out you are from the net, the lower percentage of shot it is, unless you have one of like two people in the on the planet back there, right? Like, unless you have Shea Weber, unless you have, is there anyone else even like there's no Shea Weber left yeah like shea weber was almost like the last gunner um i don't even know that there's another shot or like there's not another defenseman that i'd put at the left circle or the right circle frankly when i when i think about it maybe dougie hamilton maybe and and frankly there's not a a lot of shots that i'd like design a power play around among defensemen based on how often they convert um they're just not as efficient like to To give um to give an example like J T Miller's downhill wrist shot on the power play is like you know almost a twenty percent shot, right? Yeah. Bo Horvat in the bumper spot is like almost a one in five chance of being a goal. Um, Kuzmenko lurking around the net front, we all know that's like a goal fifty percent of the time. (laughs) I mean, it's outrageous how efficient that shot is. So and and even in contrast, like Pedersen's one timer. I mean, you need to have it, you need the threat, but fundamentally, like, that's not a high-percentage shot. You're, you're actually better off using Pedersen as a decoy and as a playmaker from that spot than you are sort of feasting in or repeatedly setting up that one weapon. Um, it's inside. You need you need shots inside. The bumper, the net front, uh, a downhill wrister, or if Pedersen can get, like, inside the circle, those, those are dangerous shots. The fact that Quinn Hughes doesn't, spend a ton of time bombing away from the points, a feature, not a bug. But but one thing that would be hugely advantageous was if he had the sort of shot that demanded a little bit of respect, because it would earn a little bit more space for everybody else, and most importantly, he could fake it. He could fake it and freeze a defender. And Quinn Hughes is unbelievable, but Quinn Hughes with an extra half second because everyone's reacting to an anticipated point blast, oh, boy. That would be that. Then you're cooking with, you know, forget oil. You're cooking with <laughs> nitrous oxide in that in that scenario. So, um, you know, I I'd try Hronik up top. If you're if you're insistent on playing Hronik and Hughes, I'd like to see Hronik up top, and I'd like to see Hughes on the downhill side on the left circle, filling the J T Miller signal caller role. Put Miller at the net front, one of Kuzmenko or Bovillier at the um at the bumper and, and there'd be a side benefit to this too, which is that you'd create an environment where all of a sudden who's your most dangerous playmaker who has the most options on their stick, Elias Pettersson, right? right. Cause he'd have two righty options in the bumper and up top. That to me would be, would be worth seeing. So I'm not, I think the key is, is if you're going to try Hughes and Hronick both from the point, you have to make the logical leap of Hughes is such a good playmaker that we can use him as a forward as opposed to being mm. like, we're going to set up Heronik's shot at the left circle. Well, that's the other thing,
1: right? You brought up the Shea Weber example and him having a bomb of uh, of a shot there. It was interesting that when Montreal consistently went to Weber in that OB spot from the yep. left circle and tried to feed him those one-timers, Montreal's power play consistently was struggling.
0: Well, yeah, and I remember the Nashville power play built around like Ryan Ellis and, and Roman Yossi, and it's like... You're basically just, you know, it's like an Allen Iverson or a Kobe, like late late career Kobe Bryant offense. Like those are inefficient shots. You're not going to win like that. You know, uh, those guys will get their points, but that's not the point. The points to have a lethal power play. So Horonick's going to debut tonight, and it'll be fascinating. We'll we'll talk about this a little more. We'll hear from Rick talk it, and we'll get into two some of the trade offs behind the trade, some of the arguments that we are about to have as heronic comes into this lineup, you know, throws the final shovel of dirt <laughs> on the grave that is the Canucks tank effort, uh, down the stretch of this season, and, and sort of what it means for this club long term. And we'll do that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Canucks talk on Sportsnet, six fifty. Hello and welcome back. Segment two of Canucks Talk. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Visit douglaslakeequipment.com and avenuemachinery.ca for more intel on your Kubota All-Star team. We're coming to you live, of course, from the Kintex studio. And feel free to hit us up for your thoughts on Philip Peronik, confirmed, poised to make his Vancouver Canucks debut. Tonight, Thursday night, at Rogers Arena against the San Jose Sharks. James Reimer starting in net. Uh, center a controversy of late as a result of his decision to pass on participating in warm-ups for San Frans- uh, San Jose's Pride Night. Anyway, you can get your thoughts in. 650-650, that's the Dunbar Lumber Text line. And we're getting some questions in, so I just want to clarify the Horonic situation for everybody. Horonic is going to debut. Rick Tockett confirmed it. We don't know what the Canucks lineup looks like because the Canucks did not hold a morning skate today. We do, however, per Brendan Batchelor's reporting, believe strongly that Thatcher Demko will start again, his ninth start in 11 games since returning from injury. So we don't know exactly where Heronic will play, but we assume that if the lower body injury that Noah Julson sustained in warmups persists, uh, w- w- we suspect, particularly after Ethan Bear and Quinn Hughes had a little bit of an iffy game. I should rephrase that. After Ethan Bear had a bit of an iffy game against Vegas, we expect Heronic to be On the top pair with Quinn Hughes, but that's educated guesswork from a couple guys who cover this team closely rather than a confirmed projected lineup from us having observed line rushes at morning skate. So that's the situation, but we do know that Hronik will debut and you know what? Why don't we hear from Rick Talkett shortly and get everything sort of buttoned up in terms of exactly what we know about the Canucks lineup, but with Hronik... You know, I know there's more to get into than what we did in our first all heronic uh, statement in the sort of segment in the first segment what what are your what else do you have to add about what fans can expect to see from this guy?
1: Well, the biggest question mark or, or the biggest curiosity I have in seeing heronic play down the stretch here is what type of impact he can have on the penalty kill. I think that is such an important aspect for next season when we look at, how much the penalty kill has struggled this season. And Horonic is such an interesting wild card there because for most of his career, he's he's kind of struggled in that area. Mm. Penalty killing shorthanded, but for defensively.
0: Yeah. Let's be real. Right? Defensively, he's struggled for much of his yeah. career and his two way results this season don't really match. His baseline performance for much of his career, right? Is that fair to say? He's had a breakout, yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry, go back to your PK point. And so, when you look at Detroit's
1: PK results, sort of this year at an individual player level, he's had second pair PK usage, and across the board, whether you look at shots against, shot attempts against, expected goals against, actual goals against, Hronik has
0: been the Wings' best defenseman mm. by those PK numbers across the board. So, but, but, but using underlying data. Yes. The problem is what I remember, I used to do a lot of work trying to figure out like who are the best penalty killers in the league. And what I quickly found out was that the guys who come on second are always the best. Oh yeah. Because, because situational situationally, if you're the first guy over the boards, you're taking the offensive zone draw or you're on the ice for the offensive zone draw. I don't know how many fans know this, but in the NHL. The rules were changed a couple of years ago, so um, in the past, it used to be the home side, like the roadside had to show the face off first, but now it always advantages the offensive players, right? So the stick down first is always the defensive guy. You're a man short, shorthanded, like that's literally a 42% faceoff, yeah. uh, you know, uh, like independent that- of. The caliber of the centerman. That is a really important qualifier. Yeah.
1: And that's why I mentioned second pair PK usage. Yeah. Thank you for spelling that out in a more clear way. Well, it's
0: just like it's the underlying data always favors the guys who come on forty five seconds into the into the thing. Like always, always across the board. Uh, I always find that the underlying data uh significantly underrates the um like the actual the actual best shorthanded guys, like like your Bergerons or what have you. Sorry. For sure, yeah.
1: And so going into next season, like it's still kind of a mystery box of what exactly he is as a penalty killer, especially because it's in terms of PK sort of players, it's so hard to actually like objectively know unless you watch are them <laughs> yeah, like all the sure. time, whether they're good penalty killers or not, right? Like how many times do we see guys like whether it was a Jason Dickinson or Curtis Lazar sort of build as good penalty killers? And sort of come here and it just didn't translate the same way. Totally. And I think it's a really important point because one of the underrated things that the Canucks
0: lost when Tanev moved on, when Edler moved on. When Beagle moved on. I know that sounds wild, but it's kind of true. Like Beagle, Sutter, even Erickson were like absolute liabilities 5-on-5. But all of them could could play pretty well 4-on-5. Like they all were in position. They all knew what they were doing in those parts of the game
1: definitely but especially with the defenders like i think mm. the in order to fix the penalty kill moving into next season we've seen the Canucks cycle through different forwards right and we've even seen Elias Petterson for example start to grow into that role i so st- 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 yeah i, I still I, think I it come comes down to, to the i think it comes down to the defenseman now like like we're even going to get McAvoy back i don't think what you do with the forwards, PK-wise, matter until you have more stability with the
0: defenders who are killing those penalties. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I think you've found something on the PK with Dakota Joshua. I think you found, I think you know you have something on the PK that you didn't get this season, partly because of the injury from Ilya McKayev. Like, Mikheyev's an, a dynamic penalty yeah. killer. I've seen him do it hundreds of times. You've seen him do it hundreds of times. He wasn't that player this year in any phase of the game away from the puck, but he was also playing on a torn ACL. I'm not adjusting my priors on Ilya Mikheyev. Put it, put it this way. I'm not saying that Ilya Mikheyev's become an offense-only guy because he played 45 games on a torn ACL and didn't have his usual two-way impact. Like That two-way impact's going to bounce back, even if, even if he loses a half-step. Um, on next season, I'm I'm very very confident about Ilya Mikheyev's ability to be a disruptive, annoying, super competent defensive piece and, and PK contributor. Pedersen, I think you found something too. Miller, maybe, but I do th- I do think you don't want Pedersen to be the first guy over the ball. Yeah, or v- over I like the him boards. the second much better, but, especially of the draws, because of the draws, but also because. What's Pedersen best at on the PK, F- like forechecking and harassing and denying entries and just being? If if you come out as sort of that second unit, I remember the the Habs had a pressure PK back in the day, and Max Pacioretty would do this. And people forget about Max Pacioretty because he hasn't been like at his peak in a while. But there was a time like this guy was like six foot four and like lanky and long, and he was just so disruptive, especially because he'd come on the first unit would be like toward the end of their they'd have a little bit of fatigue and you've got this just like all arms and legs disruptive guy this um um wacky wavy inflatable arm man sort of <laughs> skating at top speed with the ability to finish if you turned it over sort of harassing you and and it was great like it worked really well uh for the Habs, you know sort of mid mid uh teens mid aughts and um and I think that would be like a perfect thing if you could just send Pedersen out you know, even with Dakota Joshua or JT Miller and have like sort of two missiles and a real offensive threat as your sort of second guys over the wall. I mean, I think that would be fantastic. But I do still think you're looking for that that guy who you can send to win those draws as best as possible, get you that first clear and set it up for for Patterson and company. Like, I still think that's where you want and and are going to be safest using him too in terms of avoiding, you know, Persistent, lengthy shifts in zone in a stationary defending situation where eating shots is part of the job. Hundred percent. That's like that's definitely the best way to put it in terms
1: of the forwards. And then just with the D again, I'm I'm really hoping that Herona can be that guy because if not, you're you're still you still haven't checked that box off for next season because how many times early in the year did the Canucks get seamed, especially oh, down man. low? I know. And I think part of it just came down to OEL and Myers don't have that high-end defensive IQ, IQ yeah. and, th- and they just weren't built built for that sort of job.
0: Well and it's you know it's an interesting thing too to me because one of the reasons that I had a pretty significant fade on this team coming into the season as you'll know because we talk all the time um, but which I, I don't know how how often I've spelled out here was the club's Bruce There It Is run was so dependent on Myers and Oliver ekman Larson playing at a level defensively that they hadn't typically been at in their careers. And I, I sort of looked at that and thought, if that rebounds at all, if those guys come back to their career norms at all, this is going to get dicey in a hurry. And, and that's sort of what transpired. For me, Horonic is on watch similarly, right? When a, when a defenseman improves as a defensive player a lot at 25, it's a really tough thing to tell because, you know, it's one thing Myers and OEL, they're both 30, right? Like, it's like, okay, that's out of line with what they've done previously. It's unlikely that they've become a different type of defensive player at the age of 31. That's one thing. A defenseman materially can become a different type of two-way piece in their late 20s or mid-20s as they you know, have played their 400th game in the league and as they've grown accustomed to shutting down and and the tendencies of the best offensive players and what it means to be a matchup guy, particularly in, in the event that you're a player like Hronik, who's mostly been thrown to the Wolves in a, in a suboptimal d- development situation for a rebuilding team. But there's also a chance that this was a spike season that he can't maintain. And and the Canucks are, to some extent anyway, particularly given their need for defensive solidity, in my view, taking on a bit of risk because if Heronik's two-way game atrophies, if he can't maintain the gains he's made this year, if it's not the sign of a guy in their mid-20s really figuring out the league, then I worry that he profiles a little bit too similarly to the rest of this group's core, where there's you know a lot of flash, a lot of dazzle, a lot of skill, but at the end of the day, are you losing too too often five four? You know I, that 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 would be my concern here. A, a valid one, you think? I think it's definitely there's
1: there's no guarantee, right? Like it's happened once. Again, because of his age and because part of his breakout has also kind of coincided with second pair of usage. Mm, Like diminished usage. Diminished usage. Plus, I think people watching seem
0: to have legitimately seen... Improvement. Improvement. 100%. That makes Scouts love him. Yeah. I I had a lot of like, don't sleep on her Good player. Really good player. Like a lot of the people I talk to in the industry love the guy. I'm if i had to sort
1: of bet on it i'm more bullish on him being able to sustain what he has this season um as opposed to just believing it's a one year outlier but he, like there's no I, I don't know if there's a guarantee of it especially
0: when well there are no guarantees the, the other, guarantees oh. guarantees are for people who uh throw that word around as a reason not to rebuild or as a reason to undervalue draft picks like like Insisting that anything is guaranteed in life—that is the—that um, is the hallmark of bad arguments, and uh, and and those uncomfortable with risk to a self-damaging extent. So guarantees aren't a problem. The other, the other—I'm um, not guaranteed to wake up tomorrow. Like that's life. True. The other thing that I can't really—that—that that concerns me a little bit—is <laughs> sorry. I'm I'm really mad about the guaranteed. Like you're not guaranteed a Stanley Cup if you rebuild. It's like. No kidding. You're not guaranteed a playoff berth if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> the guaranteed thing has really got started to like... It's gotten under my skin, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest. Sure. It's, it's my new trigger. It's my new trigger. It's up there with anything can happen. Like, anything can happen. Anything can happen. The same people who believe that anything can happen also believe that something that's not guaranteed isn't worth doing. And it's like, how do you square that? How are you so uncomfortable with uncertainty when it's hopeful And completely unable to. Okay, I'm gonna kick it back to you. So I'm guaranteed to trigger you every time I use this word. Is (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it seems seems so. Apparently, (laughs) new thing, new thing. A new trigger for me. Let's go. Okay, I'll add that to the list.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, KG.
1: Okay, sorry, I'm rattled. I didn't (laughs) expect this. Oh boy. (laughs) Do you need
0: a sec? Should we listen to Rick talk it?
1: No. um, The other point I wanted to make was what worries me a little bit is that you're essentially betting against Stevie Iserman, right? Like in a way where it's like – the way I look at it is this. Hironic is 25, right? He's still young enough to where he could be a core piece, could have been a core piece for the Red Wings. Detroit's strong on the left side, right? They're going to have Ed Ed Vinson coming soon. They've got talent there, but they don't have – Prospects coming on the right side beyond Sider. So it would have been very sensible for them to keep Hronik long-term, mm. right? Like This isn't a player that Wings fan thought was going to get traded. What concerns me a little bit is what if St- Steve Eisenman sort of looked at Hronik because teams will probably know their player better than anybody else will after years and years of developing them and working with them so closely. What if they... What if he sort of looked at that and went, we're not confident this will last. And especially with a potentially big contract coming
0: soon, we'd rather cash in while his value is at a peak. It's a really interesting point. By the way, uh, Brandon texts in, the only guarantees in life are death taxes and the Canucks being two years away. (laughs) Um, So the the one sort of, I mean, I agree with you. I I always think you gotta look a gift horse in the mouth. But the one area that Steve Iserman has occasionally whiffed on over the course of a storied twelve year career. Defenseman. Right? Defenseman is where the record looks a little different. And and for every Sergeshev and Cernak, and obviously the headman pick, you also have a Mark Strait or a Braden Coburn. Or a Jason Mm. Garrison trade. Or a Ben Sherratt contract. And so, so, you know, I do think materially, like, defensemen are the hardest things to evaluate in this sport. And even Iserman, I think, has been fooled on occasion. Particularly with a slant toward overvaluing the contributions of the, like, hard-nosed defensive guy. And perhaps undervaluing what a skilled... Uh, or a more skilled, a more up-tempo defender can contribute. So, worth pointing out, guy's not infallible, and, at the very least, this is within a wheelhouse where he's occasionally not been as sharp as he has been just about everywhere else. That's a really interesting point. That makes me feel better. Does it? It does, I actually made you feel a little more positive about something?
1: Yeah. Wow. Wow, take notes, everybody. Especially because it would be easy to look at the template of how Tampa and a cop with their huge defensemen, who block shots and are just beasts physically and look at Hronik and go, well, he doesn't profile as that type of player. And so, Iserman, you know, it's conceivable that they look at that and go, maybe we don't value
0: this type of player player as much as he should be valued. Mm. But the flip side of it is, you know, Iserman's been really good at Trading Druin. You know what I mean? Like, Like, finding the right moment to trade the 20, the guy in their young or mid-20s for value. Anthony D'Angelo, before people realized what he was. Um, uh, Brett Connolly, right? Like, he's been pretty good at doing that, that, like, quick, like, oh, the guy's value is highest now, and I can get younger pieces with higher upside. I'll do that. And that's what draft picks are. So... It's going to be fascinating to watch how this one plays out. And it's going to be fascinating to watch how heronic plays out with the Canucks. I, I, the Hughes factor, though, does sort of twist this a little bit for me in that we really have no frame of reference for what Hronik looks like as a supporting guy. And so much of our conversations have focused on the, the non-Hughes minutes and what this looks like if... Huronix asked to drive his own pair and what sort of defender does he need? And is he a three? But what can he add in terms of clicks to the, the Canucks top of lineup fastball as a complementary piece? I don't think we have any frame or historical data on that. Like, I have no idea what to expect. We don't. That's
1: where watching him play I actually thought his game would suit being a sort of really high-end complimentary sort of guy based on the fact that he doesn't necessarily have one standout trait, but he's kind of good across the board at a lot of things where you talk about his ability to make outlet passes, you talk about the smooth skating, how he can carry the puck in the offenses on the versatility, not just with a shot, but at least in the limited sample that I saw him, he wasn't the sort of guy that was bombing from the point every time. And you're like, okay, this guy's taking too many shots and killing too many possessions. He also used the threat of his shot to set up his teammates for looks and excel as a playmaker as well in zone offensively, which I thought was an important trait if
0: he's going to excel as a complementary piece because yeah. you don't want a guy... Not wasting not wasting possessions is like the number one thing. It's It's underrated reason Luke Shen worked out so well with Quinn Hughes. Puck just went behind the net. Like Luke Shen gets it. It's going D to D or it's going back behind the net. And that was great. Like it really had to be a, a absolute like massive thicket of bodies between him and the goalie before he shot. And, and because he was so smart about valuing the puck, I think that was a huge reason why he was such a good compliment. With yeah. Quinn.
1: So as long as heronic is cognizant of that and is able to adapt his game accordingly, I think he can work as as a complimentary guy.
0: Yeah. And one thing that's interesting, and we talked a little bit about how Heronic's not super dynamic, like it, not that next level dynamic as a puck mover. Um, you know, there, there's a proxy stat that I like to use. I use a lot of proxy stats. And and one thing I like to look at for like, who is the best puck mover is primary assist rate. Primary assist rate over large samples, I think, tends to tell you a lot about who the most dynamic puck carriers are among defensemen. Like, and, and it works, right? Like Roman Yossi's one, Eric Carlson's two, Keoma McCarr's three, Quinn Hughes is you know just outside the top ten. Like, all, it it squares, right? there there. You, you have to get pretty far down before you see a couple of surprises like Jordy Ben and and Luke Shen. And even those guys are, like, underrated in terms of being clever, right? They're, like, even the guys who seem like outliers are clever. Um, Pronix never shown well by this, right? Like, he's always been, like, in the hundreds. And and that's not necessarily a reflection of playmaking or in-zone decision-making because his secondary assist, his overall assist rate's decent. But it does suggest that he's not, like, directly setting up plays, right? It, it's, it's more... It's more making smart reads on in-zone play, Um, you know, making the first pass as opposed to doing the Quinn Hughes thing where you can occasionally lead the rush or the Eric Carlson thing. I mean, we'll see Eric Carlson tonight, and he's having just an outrageous season. He's their most dangerous offensive player by a mile, by a mile. Uh, And it looks different from how every other team plays. Hey, why don't we hear from Rick Talkett before we go to break? And then on the other side, I want to talk some Carlson. I want to talk some Quinn Hughes. It's the defense show. All D all the time. I also want to talk about third line center, third line center options for this team. So we'll, we'll get all of I'll get into all of that on the in the second hour of the show. We'll also get to some of your texts. So get at us at the 650 650 Dunbar Lumber text line. But hey, hey producer Lena, before we go, why don't we hear from Rick Tockett?
2: Yeah, he's in tonight. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh raring to go.
0: Excited are you to see what he's capable of with your
2: group? Yeah, really excited. I mean, I've really, I haven't seen him a lot with the, on the ISO, But the two or three times I did, he's he's uh, going to add a lot to where you know puck moving ability. He's got a great shot. It actually his hockey IQ, just on the offensive side too, is uh, is really good. Just his patience, you know, with the puck and be able to see people. You know, he makes, you know, everybody around him better, and that's what great players do. It's just not yourself. You know, he's one of those guys that, uh, you know, he can find, you know, he can find that fourth defenseman in the play. He can find somebody in front of the net, and he's got a hell of a shot. I mean, I I didn't know it was that. I knew it was good. I didn't know it was that good. So, yeah, he's a – and the one thing with him, he wants to win. There's another level there. You know, he wants to get up in the – the Connor McDavid's, those type of, that, that category. And, um, you know, he's pushing himself. I heard you, you've been trying to get him,
0: uh, you've shown some video of Crosby to show him how, how he changes on the power
2: play and gets closer to the net. Can you kind of go through that a little bit? Well, I, I, no, it's just, I, I think... The best power plays, you know, you can't be a spot power play. So, you know, he's on the, he's on the, obviously on the, on the the flank there on the left side, but sometimes you got to go low. Sometimes I like to see him in the middle of the ice. We got to throw different looks at different teams because teams are good. They're going to scout and we're going to take PD away on certain things. So I'd like to get him. And he has gotten lower. Those two goals he shot were lower against the LA game and then uh, the other night um, against Anaheim. So we're we're trying to get him different looks because, you know, we don't want other teams to scout him and, hey, he's going to be here on this spot the whole time. So, yeah, I'd like to move, move around a little bit and design some plays for him. He's happy with it. He said he's pleased the way he thinks he's rounded his game up to a 200-foot game that's led to his offense. Do you, do you see the in that? Yeah, I, I mean, we're, you know, for our franchise to go where we want to go, um, he's got to play that way for us, you know, 200-foot game. You know, obviously I never want to take offense away from him, but he plays a diligent game in our own end too um, and that's con- infectious right other players see that your best players play that way you know I, you know i always bring up the crosby's bergeron's the, the players of the world um, even connor mcdavid i mean if you watch him in his d zone he's really improved his d zone he's a really good defensive player now too so i think you have to play 200 for a game and and P's embrace that role you know he craves it Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had some players that they just play offense, right? And, um, you know, you can't have a lot of those guys on your team because uh, you're, you're, you're going to be out in April every year. You have to have those guys. That, are, that doesn't mean you have to be a defensive player the whole game. I think it's just if you stay within team structure, team system, and P D understands that. You know, you'll see he's, he'll be the, the low forward back, and he's in there, he's defending. And then, um, you know, like I said, it's really infectious when guys do that.
0: All right, that's Rick Talk. It's setting up tonight's game against the San Jose Sharks. We'll do more of that. We'll talk some Eric Carlson versus Quinn Hughes, a matchup of two of the best puck-moving defenders, and so much more. We'll get into it in the last hour of Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Hello and welcome back to Canucks Talk. I'm Thomas Drance, joined by Harmon Dial filling in. Jamie Dodd will be back with us tomorrow after an extended absence from this program and a starring role opposite Jason Bruff on The Morning Show. Uh, poor Jamie, right? He goes from like this, the grumpiest guy on this station to the second grumpiest guy on this station as a co-host. Tough, tough gig for Jamie Dodd. Uh, Canucks Talk is brought to you, of course, by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. They're your Kubota all-star team. Visit avenuemachinery.ca or douglaslakeequipment.com for more details. We're coming to you live, of course, from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics is Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. That many Google reviewers cannot be wrong. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.com. And of course, if you'd like to contribute to our program, if you'd like to drive the conversation any direction you'd like, if you'd like to offer feedback, criticism, what have you, 650-650, that's the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Breed Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver or online at DunbarLumber.com. All right, I want to talk about the state of the Norris race. Because Eric Carlson leads all defensemen in scoring by a wide margin. I don't know that he's going to get to 100 points like it looked like he might a little bit earlier in the season. Uh, losing Timo O'Meyer has, has taken a fair bit of bite out of the Sharks generally. In fact, the Sharks are like the tanking champions of the NHL, right? They looked so strong five on five for so much of this season. And, and it sort of held them back. And, and lately, they've just hit an absolute flat while Arizona and the Ducks and the Canucks and all these other teams have won games. The Sharks have just been absolutely sinking. Um. So I don't know that he's going to get to 100 points, but he's going to have, what, a 20-point-ish margin on the next closest defenseman in scoring? And yet, you know, this hasn't been his best defensive season. How do you rate Carlson's Norris candidacy and how do you adjudicate the Norris candidacies of players like Eric Carlson but also like Quinn Hughes who have been you know scintillating this season but on teams that are not going to be even within a rocks throw of of a playoff race much less the playoffs themselves yeah it's really interesting with Carlson because typically I'm not
1: the biggest fan of the type of defenseman who put up a ton of points but give back a decent chunk of it defensively. Mm. But I think this is a unique circumstance because of how little help he has where you watch that Sharks team and they're so devoid of talent that Carlson has no choice but to say, all right, I have to be the team's offensive engine. Right? It's by It's by force, not by choice. And I think that matters because I think back to i th- I want to say it was a twenty nineteen twenty season when Connor McDavid had a year we where he put up a lot of points as always, but his defensive results were were awful. And you had a lot of people sort of saying, oh Connor Mcdavid is is a terrible defensive player like that started emerging as like a hot take based off the analytics or whatever. And I remember looking at those numbers and going, Well, part of it is because he has literally no help around him. And when you're a superstar on a team where you're expected to do everything, of course you're going to play a high-risk style. Like You can't really prioritize defense because you know that as soon as you step on the bench, sit on the bench, like nobody else is going to score. So because of that, for Carlson, in this case, I tend to give him more leeway than I usually would for the fact that he's played high-event hockey. And so based on that, and also based on the fact that even compared to, let's say, Quinn Hughes, where at least the Canucks have finishers like Pedersen, Kuzmenko, Miller. At least there's talent. At least there's talent. Carlson's had to do this without any Hurdle and Meyer, and that's it. That's it. So for that reason, I think I would still have Carlson as
0: my number one right now. Number one? Yes. Wow. Okay. Rank... The following, or or sorry, rank the following Pacific Division defensemen by the strength of their Norris candidacy. You ready? Okay. Number one, Eric Carlson. Okay. Number two, Quinn Hughes. Number three, Vince Dunn. I think Vince Dunn should be an, a a sleeper Norris candidate this year. I'm I'm gonna be straight up honest with you. Like he is absolutely. And without question, for me, been one of the top five defensemen in this league this year. His country, like the the, the Kraken, aren't close to doing what they're doing without him being, uh, you know, he's going to be a sixty point guy, matchup guy. You know, people look at that roster and say, "Well, they're devoid of elite talent." Like, well, so how are they doing this? Vince Dunn, Adam Larson, and Dunn's the engine on that pair. That's why. Like, that's that's a key part of that story.
1: I think you're onto something there for sure because, again, when I analyze the best and worst top pairs in terms of goal difference, Seattle was top 10, right? And so that has been such an engine for them. It's interesting though because I haven't had enough sort of, like I've watched Seattle, but not enough to where I'm curious, I'm sure you might have a better idea, of where the relationship between, like Dunn's obviously the way better player than Larson but how that relationship is working in terms of like driving the two way results aspect of it? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think it's done. I think, yeah. I think, I think fundamentally, Larson adds a gear defensively. Yeah, I, Larson's not a two way driver. He's a defensive mm-hmm. results driver. He's a he's a pure defensive guy. He's like he'd like he'd be a fabulous pair partner for Quinn, right? Like yeah. that's like the template of what you'd want on Quinn Hughes's right side. Um, but I don't think that pair is an elite top pair with larson and x lefty right i i think i think dunn's making that special for me that's how i yeah. tease it out yeah it's it's interesting because i'm working on
1: uh, a project on uh national project on the nhl's what i think are the 10 most underrated defensemen and i had done on that list because he's playing at a number one d level
0: and nobody's really talking about i think him. he's play- playing at a norris level and nobody's talking about it um I might be approaching the point where I'd rank Hughes, Dunn, Carlson. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, 12, 12 games left. I'm not making any decisions. Yeah. But among the Pacific Division trio, I might I might be quickly getting to that point. I I, I think Hughes, I think there's an argument that the problem for, for Hughes is there was like 10 bad games in there, right? Like he started the season slow and I don't think it was on him. I think there was something going on injury-wise. There was all of those uh, missed practices and maintenance days. And you could tell watching him. He just looked tired. He didn't look like himself. And I don't have the full story of what happened, really. But he even has talked about playing through pain and discomfort early in the year. So how do you... Like, I think there is 60 games... Out of the whatever amount of games that maybe it's 57 games that Hughes has played this season, where I think he's been at the level of the best defenseman in hockey. But there are 10 games in there where the Canucks frittered away any realistic shot at the playoffs where he was absolutely mortal, right? Like, not even, I mean, he was still Quinn Hughes. He's still like a better than average defenseman, but like not even above average. And then we'll see how, we'll see what it looks like down the stretch here, uh, you know, the rest of the way. But like, how do you how do you balance that sort of disparate, like going from being the literally number one for 57 games, but also having a 10-game sample where you're like the 60th best defenseman in hockey and that stretch being what costs your team a playoff shot. Like that's sort of what I'm going to be wrestling with in, in filling out my ballot, assuming I get one, um, with with Quinn Hughes's Norris candidacy. Yeah,
1: I think the 10 to 15-game stretch even with the context, it's it's hard for me to overlook. Me too. Me too. I just because otherwise it's so easy to make sort of similar cases for other guys where it's like, oh, if you just take out that five game stretch or that
0: road trip where they were banged up and they played. But but, but are there like I look at Carlson and you know I see what's happened, but I also know when I've seen the defensive play and all the like sh- you know one goal games they've lost and you know I like. The numbers I think he'll run away with it because his offensive production is so much higher than everybody else, but I don't think I don't think he's been better than Vince Dunn. I don't think he's been better than Kale McCarr. Um, you know, I, I like I don't even know if he's been better than an Adam Fox. Like if he has, it's not by a lot, considering Adam Fox's superior defensive profile. Dougie Hamilton, I think, has to be up there. Josh Morrissey's definitely in the conversation. Like, you know, I, I think he's... For me, the points are probably... The gap in point production, like actual production, especially because so much of it's a five-on-five, five, will keep him on my ballot. But I don't know that he's, like, been of a different caliber in terms of overall contributions than that group of five or six that I just mentioned. I would ag- I would agree in that there's very little separating them. I don't
1: think he's been a class above everybody else, but I, I would still, like... To do that on that Sharks team, I still, I I still would have him number one. I mean, he's got 22 goals and 87 points in 71 games. Where it's like, even as a defenseman, right? So many of, for for any defender, the assists that they get, sometimes it's just as simple as teeing up a guy on the power play for a rocket one timer. Right, you think about, for example, John Carlson back in the day. How many points he collected just by funneling the puck? Totally. Ability. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you got a point, but how much was that point really worth in like driving the outcome of the goal? I think even Carlson's points are worth more
0: because they're so individually. Because they're driven. so individually driven. That's a fair point. Hey, we've got some breaking Canucks news. Cue up the music. Sportsnet six fifty, breaking news. The Vancouver Canucks have signed Christian Willannon to a two-year two-way extension, per Patrick Alvine and the team. This contract is official. The cap hit seven hundred seventy-five k, with a AHL salary at five hundred k. So, an expensive American League salary um, for Christian Wallenin. And it's both years. It's two-way both years, despite his stellar run down the stretch. Really interesting, because I think there was a chance that Annan had done enough to maybe warrant like a, like a, a one-way deal if he'd hit free agency, and given the dearth of options in free agency. The fact that he signed a two-year two-way here, I wonder what that says about his view of the opportunity that could await him here, right? Like, that's the sort of bet from a player's perspective that you make. And it's a million dollars guaranteed for Christian Wynne. And, like, that's real money for a player who's been through waivers and gone through sort of what he's gone through in his career as he's cemented himself as, like, a really good quad A guy, which is, you know, how we viewed him coming into the season. I think he's changed some minds based on how well he's played of late. But, you know, this is a guy who still to this point in his career has only ever had a one-way salary once, like one year, 2020, 2021. He had a one-way salary. He's played 85 NHL games, um, you know, a hundred or so, a hundred or so in the American league. And he's only ever at once had a one-way salary. Now he's got a million dollars guaranteed. And yet, I think there was a real path to him getting a one-way 750K deal if he'd waited till free agency. The fact that he's done this deal early for two years uh, at a two-way salary, first of all, shows, uh, I mean, it's it's a fantastic deal for the team. But from the player's perspective, I do think this, like the language of the contract strongly suggests to me that Wolanin sees opportunity here on this back end, given his usage of late given the state of the team, given what he thinks he can contribute. What's your reaction to this Will deal?
1: Yeah, first of all, great bet for the team.
0: Yeah. Oh, great and congrats congr- let's congratulate uh, uh you know, uh, a guy who's had um, you know, a, a journeyman career yeah. since he left the University of North Dakota and has been wildly impressive. Ever like ever since training camp, we were like, "Ooh, the details on his passing, like there there's something there." Uh, crushed it in the American League. Has played really well for the Canucks since coming up. Congratulations to him. Absolutely. The interesting thing
1: is you mentioned the possibility of of being a, of him potentially being able to net a one way deal in free agency. If I was his agent, I would have 100% told him to take this deal and run. For a few reasons. Number one, the opportunity, as you mentioned, which I think is is optimal here, especially on uh, on the left side and the sort of bottom pair type of role especially now that Travis Dermott hasn't had because of injuries the type of year that we expected and since he's a guy that makes 1.5 million this year and is and is, is, is I think the same amount to qualify he's just so much more attractive
0: Lannon is from the team's perspective Well, especially because Dermott's clearly been battling repetitive yeah. head injuries at this point I mean I just wish the best for him like I I, you know that but that's one where you can't qualify it because you just don't know if you're going to get games like it's it's a really unfortunate situation because he never had the chance to make a hockey case for himself really at all this season you know like it's just I I, I mean even by like I don't even think we've seen a single game this season where you know you would have said that's like who Dermot is. Or, like, that's what you can reasonably... Like, he never got a chance to even make a case for himself. Uh, I mean, I, I don't even look back on that trade. Like, I look back on the age gap trades, this misguided strategy, but, you know, I, you can't blame anybody oh, yeah. for that. That's... Uh, you just hope he gets right, because he's uh, a good guy. Um, you know, he'll he'll get a shot, I'm sure, but it might be a PTO. Like, yeah. he's going to have to show he can stay healthy. And so, that unfortunate situation creates opportunity
1: for next season yep. for Lannan. On top of that... I don't. I don't think... I would I would have been surprised if you got a second year on a one-way from a team in free agency. Which means this is a lot of guaranteed money because you have that second year. Especially because of that inflated uh, AHL salary if he ever does go down. And the last factor is if things don't work out, the worst case scenario is you're in Abbotsford and you're not
0: flying all the way across the country or having to relocate your family well and from the team's perspective they probably look at the AHL salary as something that helps him clear waivers right the the part of the part of the advantage Uh, but but again like you you can also just do that with a one-way deal (laughs) (laughs) you know and I don't think we would have batted an eyelash if it had been a two-year one-way yeah one-way deal for Wolanin um but good business for the Canucks that they've managed to avoid doing that on both Willan and Andy Giuseppe two players who I thought would be certainly strong candidates for one-way contracts. Canucks have uh, given themselves some financial flexibility uh, by getting these deals done early and by getting them done, uh, you know, two way Uh, curious to see what this means too, for the rest of the defense core. Like, uh, you know, I'd heard the club uh, was moving pretty quickly toward uh, a Noah Juleson extension. I I still suspect that gets done at some point, uh, Kyle Burrows, I'd heard it, it was quiet around Burrows and Willannon. That's about 10 days ago. Clearly, things heated up around Willannon uh, and got done. But Burrows remains one that I'm curious about just because of the defensemen we've seen, and Willannon's been such a key part of it. But of the defensemen that we've seen who are sort of put in that like waiver chum group, right? Burrows, Juleson, Brisbois, Willannon. I think all of them have been impressive in their own right. But none of them, to me, profile as guys who could be, like, everyday players above the third pair who just have never got a shot to actually hold down that role, except maybe Kyle Burroughs. Like, Burroughs is the only guy who I look at and think, could you have Mike Weaver here? (laughs) Like, could you have that guy who never gets a shot because... That usually they're too short, frankly. But actually, you know, he moves the puck well enough. He's tough. He gets really good defensive results. Like, everyone he plays with does better with him than without him. He's the only guy of, of that list that I'd be like, there's a chance you get a second pair guy out of that. Probably not. Most likely not. But maybe. Um, I'm, I'll be curious to see how this plays out with Juleson and with Burrows. Uh, and if the club takes a similar approach in trying to get those done, and I think they will with Juleson, so specifically with Burroughs, uh, before the end of the season.
1: I think Burroughs is absolutely the type of guy worth bringing back because of the versatility and different ingredients that he Right, he can provides. play the left side, play, play the right side. can play yeah. both sides, adds that toughness element. Look at the way that Austin Watson took a run at Elias Peterson, and Burroughs did not hesitate to go up against Watson, where there's a significant size disadvantage advantage there. So for a guy to step up in that instance, like how many other guys would have fought Austin uh, Watson there?
0: Yeah, that <laughs> especially was
1: a- with Luke Shengon. Like I still think, look at me advocating for like the tough guy element. But
0: <laughs> no, you thought? need it. But you need it. it. Like I, I think it. I think it matters. You can't get pushed around, man. You like you can't. You don't. I'm not saying you have to like. I'm not going to judge a team by like going into the season and being like, well, they can beat up their opponents in the alley or like whatever mumbo jumbo that is. But you, you can't get pushed around in this league. You can't get punked. Yeah, Kyle Burrows helps you avoid getting punked. Period. So for sure,
1: I will, however, disagree. In I don't think that there is any upside beyond what he is as as a bottom pair guy.
0: Yeah, I, I, I I'm convinced there could be. Uh, you need the right situation, and, and on and on, and it might take. He, I don't he, think he, he has the IQ. I I do. I think he has it. I think I think positionally
1: there have been times both last season and this year where I've just I haven't liked the the reads at certain times.
0: fair enough. Well well we disagree. I think most people would probably agree with you. there's a reason he's um, you know also struggled to get one-way contracts at the NHL level, right but I, I think there's something in there. I, I think there's enough IQ, there's enough puck moving dynamism and there's the toughness side. Um, I see something in there. Uh, but we'll see. Anyway, Will Landon is an interesting one. Could he be your everyday third pair guy next season? If he continues playing this, like this, why not? He
1: at least should be a candidate. Yeah. Like, I don't... The way the team should approach it, you should probably hope to have another sort of like contender for that spot in case it doesn't work out. For sure. Because you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket and then for whatever reason it just wait, doesn't work.
0: Wait, although you do also have Guillaume Brisbane on a two-way. So, sure. I mean, you know... And then we'll see how it plays out with Oliver ekman Larson and we'll see how it plays out in free agency. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you come into camp and your battle is between Brisebois and Wolanin, is that enough for you, or do you want to see another guy? i want guy? another guy. Yeah. Personally, I because I really like Wolanin as a contender
1: there. I'm not quite as high on Brisebois in terms of the battle for an everyday sort of... I like him much more as, like, a first-recall type of guy. Yeah. That's the way I view uh, Perfectly reasonable. So I would like another challenger for uh fit in there, but I'm pretty comfortable with Will being your leading contender for your left shot everyday
0: bottom pair guy next year. And we'll head to break, but just a reminder, the Canucks breaking news this afternoon have signed defenseman Christian Willannon. So impressive since the club hired Rick Tockett and jettisoned a ton of bodies both at the trade deadline and as a result of injury. Um he's been extended by the club. It's a two-year, two-way deal Cap hit is 775K as confirmed by Cap Friendly. We'll discuss that and other Canucks topics ahead of the game against the San Jose Sharks, which you can hear right on this station later tonight. You're listening to Canucks talk on Sportsnet 650. The most
1: comprehensive Canucks coverage in the city Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah.
0: Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. I'm your host Tom Strance, joined by Harmon Dial. This is our last segment of the day. Jamie Dodd back tomorrow, so thank you for listening to us, and thank you Harmon for joining us so many times over the course of this week. It's been a blast to do radio with you, my friend. Dude, it's it's been a ton of fun. It's flown by. It flown by truly. My, uh, we uh, we work together closely. On the writing side, but it's been a blast to do it in a different format. And we've had a lot to discuss. Uh, Canucks have Philip Peronick debuting tonight. That's sort of the big news, but the club has also extended Christian Wolanin. It's a two-year, two-way deal. S- uh, cap hit 775 k as confirmed by capfriendly.com. Let's pay the bills and then we'll come- go back to talking hockey. Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Visit douglaslakeequipment.com and avenuemachinery.ca for more info. We're recording from the Kintech studio. And if you'd like to be involved in the conversation, text in 650-650. That's the Dunbar Lumber text line. Now, the Wolanin signing for me shines something of a spotlight on two items that you know I like to keep my eye on. Okay, one of them is the big picture. Like, what does the Filipparonic signing or debut, excuse me, what does the Philipparonic debut tonight mean for this team? Big picture, um, you know, that's front of mind, and I think dovetails with a discussion I, I heard my friend, our friend and colleague Rick Dollywall on Donnie and Dolly talking about the Canucks' desire. One of their top priorities this this summer is going to be a third line center, um, and yet. What the Wolanin signing also says to me is, this is a defenseman who probably has played at a level where he could have had one-way deal opportunities this summer if he'd waited, who wanted to get a deal done early because he sees opportunity here. And I think that speaks, too, to what the Heronic deal means because this defense has still got to be an unfinished product, right? Like, there is still work to be done to get this defense to the level it needs to be if this team is going to compete to to reach, you know, their sort of um, hazily expressed goal of making the playoffs next season. I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this bigger priority for this team next season. What makes a bigger difference in terms of juking their playoffs uh, odds in a favorable direction for you? An upgrade at third line center or an additional credible top four defenseman ad? An additional credible top
1: four defenseman ad for me. I just look at Hughes and Hronik. That's a good start. That's just not enough, though. I mean, I go back to the 2019-20 season, right, where the Canucks, at that point, barely squeaked, squeaked into the playoffs. We were talking about that blue line not being good enough, and that blue line had Quinn Hughes playing really well. That blue line had Alex Sedler, that blue line had Chris Tanev, that blue line had Tyler Myers still playing at a credible top four value. Troy Stetcher was still a a really positive contributor, and yet that's still, we were still looking at that blue line going, that's not enough. So right now, when I look at this blue line in contrast, Hughes and Roenick, okay, that's good two good pieces to start. I like Will potentially as a third pair guy.
0: You got to build more though. Yeah. Well, and, you know, Rick Talkett spoke after the Vegas game about the engine of the Golden Knights being that wildly impressive, you know, White Cloud, uh, Haig, McNabb, Pietrangelo, Shea Theodore, who's the name I'm forgetting, Martinez. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's a bunch of guys, all of them big, all of them can move the puck at least a little bit. Um, You know, like McNabb's not a puck moving guy, but he can move the puck. He makes smart plays, man. He's a good player. He talked a lot about that being sort of the engine of that team, and I, I think he's right. Right, like I think he's dead on in terms of the the contributions of, of that group to what Vegas has achieved in sort of bouncing back. And you know, I, I think they're going to win the Pacific. Do the Canucks have enough snarl on this blue line as it's built? Or, or is that going to be a priority to add, do you think, particularly given how we know Rick Tockett likes to play? I mean, it should be a priority. I mean, the ideal archetype of the
1: defenseman you're able to acquire now is, a def- like, it doesn't matter if the guy's left shot or right shot, just a defensive-minded guy who is really strong defensively, adds some of that size, can stop the cycle, some of that snarl you mentioned, and it's just more of like a shutdown guy who you can point to and go, that guy can go up against the opposition's best
0: players and play in a shutdown role if you if you wanted him to. We're getting a lot of texts about Jack Rathbone and where he fits in. My sense of it is the relationship there has really gone poorly. I think there's been some progress on it, but I, I think I think he's. I don't think he's in the club's plans at this point. Do you have a Do you have a different sense of it? No, I agree with you, Uh, especially when he has gotten a chance and it's been few and far between.
1: Yeah, it it hasn't looked good. So I just think he's at the age now where I don't think he's going to get the chance here.
0: Yeah, well, and I mean, even his defensive results in the American League, from what I understand, it's not like he's made huge strides there, even though he remains a very, very good American League player. Uh, That feels like a change of scenery is going to be needed. Yeah. One guy who gets talked about a lot for the Canucks third line center hole, and this is a name that our our pal Dolly Walsh explicitly brought up, is Ivan Barbashev. Now, I watched Ivan Barbashev play live on Tuesday, and he was playing on the wing, which is where he's most often played in his NHL career. And you know, Harmon will vouch for me, like... I'm an original Barbashev truther. Like, pre-breakout, he's, like, a long been a guy whose game I really admired. And the reason I admire his game so much is that he's a big, assertive, lengthy puck battle winner along the wall as a winger. I like him as a winger. He hasn't played a lot of center in his NHL career. Like, he's kind of not a center he can do it he's listed as a center on nhl.com but so so it's basically everybody what are your thoughts on ivan Barbashev as a center um and given the probable cost uh, of bringing him in is that the sort of name that this team should be looking for or uh, are are they going to need to be a little more careful about the dollars they commit there I'm
1: worried just in general about the idea of paying any guy who's in his late 20s a mid-range three or four-year deal because when you look at the Horvat trade, bringing in Aturatu as a centerman, the appeal of a young player isn't just their pure value as a player in terms of, oh, you're a third-line guy or whatever. It's the cost at which you can do it. Right that's that's the whole name of the game in in today's NHL it isn't just as, assemble find good players it's find good players at the best possible rate so that you can have you can fit as many good players under the cap right so with Ratu I don't think he's necessarily ready for that third line center role right away next season but there's a pretty good chance if he hits as a prospect that he could be that guy the year after Mm -hmm. Well, what happens if you sign a 28-year-old to, what, like a $4 million per year, three- or four-year deal? Like, aren't you blocking that path and creating an environment where the extremely cheap
0: rate that Ratu would deliver value at, like, aren't you just undermining that value? Yeah. Well... It's going to be a really interesting market too. So you bring up a four million dollar evaluation. I, I don't think that's outside the bounds of what we could see, partly contingent on playoff performance for some of these players. I mean, JT Comfer is going to be price. I think I even think Ryan O'Reilly is going to be price. Um, you know, certainly, certainly, guys like Teddy Bluger, uh, Ivan Barbashev, and um, Oscar Sunkfest could get expensive depending on how their playoffs unfold and, and how the market unfolds. And, you know, one thing that's going to be interesting is there's a lot of talk I hear in this market about how some of the contracts for forwards that we know the Canucks would would like to move or at least would consider moving. So Besser and Garland would be in the would like to move camp and, and JT Miller in the would consider moving that their value might go up as a result of the weak free agent class, right? That like teams might look around and say, hey, we don't have any other options. Do these become better options? And my view of this sort of is that there's kind of a bit of a misunderstanding of how teams make decisions, right? I I don't think teams are going to look at their available cap space and and say, we should go and trade for that guy rather than sign this guy. Uh, or, or rather than sign a player because we don't like the options out there, the, the f- first question they'd ask is, if we could sign this guy, would we sign him to that contract? Mm. Like, that's going to be their first thing. Especially in a world where so many teams are going to ha- be cap crunched, if if your immediate answer isn't yes, in fact, we'd pay more for that, more than that amount, then you're not going to be giving up assets for that player, right? You're going to instead call every team that you know needs to shed money if you have some to spend and be like what will you pay us to take that guy what will you pay us to take this guy like what what can we do in terms of bargain shopping um i just don't know that the market's going to form where teams are like we struck out in free agency but that guy i, I still think the dynamics of an inefficient contract remain right the t- if teams are taking those deals they're going to want to get assets to do so. They're going to want the best deal for themselves. That's how rational decision makers function. Where I do think the weak free agent market could have an impact is in inflating the price on those players who are available with no acquisition cost whatsoever. Right? Like that's where I think an Ivan Barbashev could potentially do really well is is teams just don't have a lot of other options in terms of good players to spend their money on. Like that's that's sort of in 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 both cases, I I don't see the market forming in a way that benefits a non playoff team that has more cap space committed than anyone else, and I, this shouldn't be like a hot take or and I'm this is logical stuff, you know this is. You know this isn't giving them hell. This <laughs> this is the truth that maybe sounds like hell to some Canucks fans, but it's like truly like. Uh, uh, do you do you disagree with my read here? No, I I agree there. It's
1: also interesting where. With, look, in an ideal world, the Canucks would be in a position where they don't have to spend in free agency because that's a route where you usually have to overpay and you're taking on risky contracts. But because this team's sort of positioned themselves to where they want to be competitive short term, that's probably what they're going to have to do. That's where, I mean, I guess, well, whether it's free agency or taking on sort of like a mid contract that another team might not love on the trade market. If you're talking about investing dollars mm. into either against the cap either to a defenseman or a third line center again it depends on on what exactly the players are but all else being equal i'd prefer the defenseman because the canucks probably don't have that internal guy pushing within the next couple of years
0: whereas again with with raw you may have that in two years right um Text comes in unsigned. Why not sign a guy like Eric Holla for a one-year deal, like the Devils did? Holla was not a signing by the Devils. He was the contract they took back in the Pavel Zaka trade, a, a, a trade that really didn't work out very well for the Devils. Uh, and they've had such a dream season. We haven't talked about it, but that was a, I was I was fading Zaka as an acquisition last summer when it was rumored that the Canucks were in on him. Um, Boston did well there. That was a that yeah, was a, that surprised th- me. I wasn't. I wasn't very high on Zaka either. No, that's worked out really nicely for Boston. Uh, But Hall has been a nice find for the Devils too. I mean, Hall is going to be available and relatively inexpensive, but he also is unique enough in terms of his speed and offensive profile that he might not be as cheap as as you want. I don't think he's a $1 million player.
1: But also Zaka, Boston acquiring him and then having the flexibility of using him either on the wing or at center when they've when they've ever had injuries. Right, puts him in a good spot. Puts him in a good spot, but also, that shows you, like, they acquired him for Eric Hala. Like, it costs them basically nothing. Like, you're better off almost trying to find the the bargain option in terms of either, like, right. trying to find a guy who's undervalued is, is kind of what I mean. Um, or even, we've spitballed this uh, this name before, the way Frederick Goudreau landed in Minnesota he he wasn't really on many teams' radar. He looked good as a part-time player in Pittsburgh, and there were some signs. But Minnesota signed him at such a cheap rate. I think one million. You're talking Freddie Goodrow. Good- yeah. yeah. And last season he was centering Fiala and, and Boldy, and that line was really good. And this year he's
0: still been an effective third-line type center, like and he's find, like, and he's right-handed. Yeah, I mean, to me, to me, if you're talking about like what sort of targets that cannot like Barbashev and Sunqvist are the defensive guys that everyone's going to talk about um and they should right I mean this team does need penalty killing help on and on but like for me Frederick Gaudreau or Evan Rodriguez if he's still relatively affordable following this season like those to me are like better fit guys those to me are guys who can truly help a third line even even a, an Alex Kerfoot type right I mean those are the types of guys, like, I think this team also, we can't lose sight of the fact that this team also needs more skill, right? Like, also needs more speed, also needs more guys that can contribute to a line that can control play, and also is a centerman, right? Like, is an actual centerman. Um, finding, like, the perfect center for your for your penalty kill, that's... That's contender talk, like this team also just needs players they need they need a guy who can play second line minutes for them if at any point you know heaven forbid they have an injury to one of their top six guys. I mean, you need talent in addition to everything else as much as this team has scored, they still need more talent. We can't lose sight of that. It's not gonna be easy, man no, like, I'm just well, they don't have do a ton this? of space, it's... especially.
1: The thing is the archetype of player that the Canucks would land in like a best case scenario in terms of like a third line center on an actual like good team. Like that guy would be I'm trying to find the the best example of that type of guy. I guess like a Backlund. Yes, or or like, yeah, like Backlund. There you go. And it's like that type of guy who
0: checks off all those boxes. There's like 3 of them.
1: Yeah, in terms of like defensive value, <laughs> offensive value, being able to like totally. kill penalties, matchup guy. So it's like when the Canucks are looking for this third line center now, they're going to inevitably have to compromise somewhere along mm. those roads. And if you're going to compromise, I'd rather just not pay a lot for it. And I'd rather try and find the undervalued sort of option, is the way I look at it. Because look, if that type of, you know, Backland type of, of, centerman was available then i'd say okay then i have no problems actually paying up for that type of centerman it's just i probably know i'm gonna have to compromise somewhere with the third line center i require so i just want to be mindful of not paying a ton for it in terms of cap space and in terms of um, assets if i trade for it well
0: let's not forget too right like we're looking at a world where if the cap goes up to 83.5 right so a one million dollar lift it could be more it could be less. not likely to be less, but it could be more. but realistically that's a very reasonable baseline based on the public commentary and the private commentary, frankly, of NHL cap experts but also the PA and Gary Bettman himself, you know, assuming li- like let's put let's leave Giuseppe up, Studenica up and dries up and we'll have O'Lannon on the roster but we'll we'll send down Guillaume Brisbois just as a just as a template. I've also recalled Spencer Martin to be the backup. Okay? So those are sort of the basic assumptions. I'm also going to leave Pearson and Pullman on LTI, but like that's far from assured, right? I mean, I mean, hopefully for them that's not going to be the case. 5 million in cap space with 18 bodies on the roster and only four defensemen. Myers, Hronick, Hughes, O'Lannon. And that's with Hironik and Pedersen expiring following that season, and um, none of the RFA is done. So Hoaglander not done, Ethan Bear not done. Those are the key ones. Is there anyone else? Just Don't those think two. So. so you're looking at about five million in cap space. So, I mean, you literally cannot get into the bidding on a Barbashev until you've brought in defensive reinforcements right like you have to figure out and navigate what you're going to do with bear because even if it's a one-year deal that's two and a half million that's half your cap space for ethan bear right and then we're talking about another top four quality guy and and you do all of that and you're looking at a dries them on bottom six in terms of your bottom six centerman, maybe maybe you hope for ratu but that's a that's a prayer that's a hope bet so you're gonna have to make a move. You're gonna have to find a way off of a Garland or a Besser or an Oel or a Myers, and you're gonna have to consider buyouts. You're going to have to take on some sh- some long term pain just to fill out a roster that I don't know. I think it's gonna be a coin flip to be the to be a playoff team, like that's gonna lean require Thatcher Demko to be the, the player he's been the last eight starts as opposed to you know, even league average that's going to need a lot to break their way in the Pacific. Do you think at all about that side of it? Because I, I just can't separate myself from the big picture concern. On the eve of, not the eve, but on the day that Filiperonic is about to debut, the one thing I can't escape is how that trade, like the the... How that trade puts the Canucks into a win-now mode. Like, for that trade to work, they have to make the playoffs next year. Like, absolutely yeah. have to. And I don't know if they're ready for it. I, I, does this does this hang in any way over Heronics' impending debut? Or are you just overwhelmed by the curiosity of seeing, you know, probably the best right-handed defenseman that this team is empl- employed play for this team, um, you know, in in two two three years? Well, I'm trying not to worry. I,
1: I, I'm trying to car, uh, compartmentalize. So I, I'm trying to focus as much as possible on Hronik and the excitement and the positivity about that because I know I'm going to have in, um, in about a month here when, when the Canucks' season ends, the rest of the summer is just going to be staring down that uh, situation where they're probably going to have to accelerate a year or two earlier than
0: what would have been ideal. Right. Which is a legit concern. Is it fair for the Canucks to be judged on the Heronic trade based off their success next year? Or do we have to take a wider angle lens based on like what Detroit does with the picks? And whether or not you know Heronic solidifies this defensive group for years to come? Um, is it as simple as needing to capitalize off it next year? Or do you disagree with my assessment there? Well, it needs to fit within,
1: let me rephrase their bigger-picture plan needs to work, the Canucks'. Is. For for any, like, the the small wins or or even, like, the big win of a, of a trade, for example, whatever happens, the, the actual direction needs to work. I'll give you a great example. You look at the JT Miller trade, for example, for instance, right? Canucks won that trade. Getting that type of player at that type of value, value that, that they did, that's great for them. But guess what happened? The bending regime is still judged very poorly because...
0: They won they, they won the they trade t- but lost the build. Exactly. Whereas whereas the Tampa Bay Lightning gave up JT Miller and probably didn't get the sort of return that he would have netted twelve months later, and yet they turned that pick into Blake Coleman.
2: <laughs> they yeah.
0: turned the cap space that they got for JT Miller into the this ace third line. They win two straight. The cups. big picture plan has to work. Right. Irrespective of the value or the yeah. Yeah. Right, the, what matters is winning. What matters is winning. Her, uh, Alvin said
1: that too after his uh, trade deadline presser. Do you remember at the end how passionately he was speaking about it uh, doesn't matter if draft picks hit, doesn't matter if we have good players, all that matters is winning. Only winning, that's the only thing that matters. Yeah. As In, in terms of like a big picture organizational
0: philosophy. So Even at this time of year. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's going to do it for us here at Canucks Talk today. Thank you so much. You were such a good fill-in host. I loved doing it with you. Always enjoyed chatting hockey with you, my friend. Thanks, man. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and thank you to everyone who texted in. Uh, and and joined us this week. It's been a blast. Uh, We'll have Jamie Dodd back on the program tomorrow. We'll resume our usual scheduled stuff. We'll actually do 10 Minutes of Positivity tomorrow because Jamie will be uh, driving the bus. Yeah, Jamie will be driving the bus, keeping us focused and on task. I won't get to keep ducking it. We'll also have Dave Nonis tomorrow. Going to be a good show. So tune back then, and thank you for joining us today. That's Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650.